This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And when we think of great American inventors, names like Edison, Bell, Ford, and Franklin come to mind. But there's another inventor from around the turn of the century who's risen in popularity more recently than all of them. His name, Nikola Tesla. He was an immigrant who became a naturalized citizen in 1891. Here's Jesse with the rest of the story. Born in July of 1856, during a lightning storm in Serbia, Nikola Tesla is best known for his contributions in the design of the modern alternating current electricity supply system. With a name that has become synonymous with physics and engineering, Tesla is also remembered as a mad scientist who died penniless and alone. His experiments covered some of the earliest documented designs for fluorescent lighting, x-ray machines, radio, television, and even drone technology. But it's easy to romanticize a figure like Tesla. His father was a Serbian Orthodox priest. He hoped his son was going to go to the seminary as well. At a certain moment, Tesla convinces his family that he really ought to go study mathematics and then engineering. Here to separate fact from fiction, the man from legend, is biographer W. Bernard Carlson, speaking with permission of Microsoft Research about his book, Tesla, Inventor of the Electrical Age. So he goes to the Johann and Polytechnic Institute in Graz, Austria. There he starts learning about electricity. He basically comes up with the idea after watching a demonstration in a physics class that the thing that the world needed at that point was a motor that did not spark, that had no commutator, that is to say no rotating switch in it, and that that would be a much better motor, it would be an ideal motor. How did he learn how to fully develop that motor? He went to work for several companies related to the Edison organization, one first in Budapest, that was a telephone company, then Paris where they were installing electric lights. He was a very good field engineer. He got transferred from Paris to New York City and he arrived in New York City in 1884. He only stays with the Edison organization about six, eight months and basically strikes out on his own in 1886 and starts up his own laboratory and his own business with some very talented and smart business partners, a man named Charles Peck and a man named Alfred Brown. There were investors, they were Wall Street types. I always imagine that they had this conversation with Tesla where they were looking at him and they said, we don't know what the hell you're talking about, but I love it and I want to make you a star. And, and that Peck and Brown really did, particularly Peck, made Tesla into a star. They really helped him figure out how to patent, promote, and sell. And indeed, when Tesla successfully develops this motor, they sell the patent rights to Westinghouse in 1888, to George Westinghouse. And Tesla, he splits the money with Peck and Brown. And Peck and Brown walk away with five-ninths of the deal. And Tesla gets four-ninths of the royalties that come off that invention. Why? Because Tesla himself knew that these guys, these business guys, had helped make him. Tesla's induction motor and the licensing of the patent by Westinghouse came at a time of extreme competition between electric companies. The three big firms, Westinghouse, Edison, and Thomson-Houston, were all trying to grow while undercutting each other's prices. In comes the financial panic of 1890 and Westinghouse couldn't keep up. Debts were sold to new lenders who wanted cutbacks on Tesla's guaranteed $15,000 per year in royalties on a motor that was basically just a working prototype. 
Tesla agrees to tear up his contract in exchange for remaining on good terms with Westinghouse, and the bet pays off. Six years later, Westinghouse purchased Tesla's patent for a lump sum payment of $216,000. That's somewhere north of $6 million in today's money. Many people say that Tesla had no sense of business. Eh, wrong. Tesla actually had a very clear sense of how he was going to make money off of his inventions. He wasn't going to do it like Edison did by manufacturing light bulbs or generators of all of that. Tesla, his business strategy was patent, promote, sell. Get the intellectual property, promote the living daylights out of the intellectual property, sell it to the highest bidder, move on to the next project. So he had a business strategy. That business strategy meant that the guy had to be a master showman. He had to be able to really get you excited, to get you to believe that what he was going to do was the next really cool thing. And that was part and parcel of the way that he approached creativity. And unlike Edison, who invented towards the marketplace, in other words, never invented something for which he didn't already have worked out who was going to be the customer, Tesla illustrates a very different sort of path, what economists would call a knowledge-driven form of innovation. Tesla's approach to invention was to say that underlying everything out there in the world, whether it is, it, is, it is just out in nature or it's something that people made, is a principle, what the Serbian Orthodox theologians would call the logos, and that the role of the inventor was to discover, discern that principle, and build the invention around that. So if you could come up with the kind of the kernel, the really the heart, the idea of what that technology was about, that's what you would build the invention around, okay? Now, this comes as, as uh, you know, straight out of philosophy, out of the thinkings of Plato. Uh, if you read The Republic, Plato believed that that's what philosophers did, that philosophers found that kind of ultimate truth or underlying principle. The problem is, is not everybody surrounding the inventor or surrounding the philosopher understands what the ideal is about. And so you have to give people an approximation sort of say, well, it's kind of like this or it's kind of like that. The way I approach Tesla is this is, I call those illusions. Now, he's not trying to trick people, but he is trying to conjure up something in your mind that gets you excited so you want to buy the next new technology. Okay, so he could tell you a story. He could use a metaphor. He could invoke certain values. And the interesting part about his life then is this tension back and forth between ideal and illusion. I can picture this wonderful new way of doing things build an electric motor around rotating magnetic field, but how do I then explain that to some businessman who may not know anything about electricity? I've got to tell him a good story. I've got to engage that, that investor in some way. And when we come back, more of the life of Nikola Tesla. And what an interesting story thus far. And what a way of thinking about things. Patent, promote, and sell. And that was the process for Nikola Tesla. Patent, you got to innovate and invent, and around these principles, promote. My goodness, it sounds like he's almost P.T. Barnum. He's got to get out there and really push it, dazzle people, and then sell it, and then on to the next big idea. We're learning more about one of the great inventors in American history. Nikola Tesla's story continues here on Our American Story.
return to Our American Stories and a brief history of Nikola Tesla. And here again is Jesse Edwards and Professor Bernard Carlson. When we left off, Nikola Tesla had sold his AC induction motor to Westinghouse Electric. When they hit financial trouble, Tesla let them out of their contract of $15,000 per year in royalties, only to have them turn around and buy the patent six years later for two hundred sixteen grand, or upwards of $6 bucks adjusted for inflation. Now Nikola Tesla had the funding to do whatever he wanted. And whatever he wanted, he did. He invents the Tesla coil in 1891, an antenna that's used to produce a high-voltage, low-current, high-frequency arc that moves through the air like lightning. Here again is biographer W. Bernard Carlson. Tesla leaves New York, goes to Colorado Springs, and there builds an experimental station, the largest, probably the largest Tesla coil that was ever built, and he was able to get sparks off of this magnifying transmitter, this giant Tesla coil, on the order of about 100 105 feet. Tesla discovered that when he held a fluorescent light next to the Tesla coil, it would light up even without being plugged into anything. He was convinced that there was a way to use this energy. Imagine lighting an entire house with this wireless electricity near the turn of the century. Entire neighborhoods, towns, cities. As far as he was concerned, if I could get one light bulb to light up, no problem. I can get 100 to work, and I'm not going to lose any energy. He, he Basically, because he took the view that if I can imagine the ideal in my mind, I can see it in my mind's eye, and I get just enough evidence from the real world that it's working. I can get one light bulb to work. I'm home free. It's going to turn out. Okay. So one of the scary parts about Colorado Springs is this, is, and there's like 500 pages of notes from Colorado Springs, and you're going through, I'm going through them, and I'm reading all the newspaper articles from that time period, and I suddenly realize... There are no witnesses. Nobody saw anything other than Tesla and like one assistant in Colorado Springs. Okay, So he basically said, I did it, but he has no proof. Tesla was convinced that he had sent electricity not only across the cow pasture, but around the world. Over the next decade, he conducts public demonstrations where he would light a bulb from across the stage but he never really found any success in making that commercial product out of his findings. So he goes back to New York to look for investors for an idea he has in the world of wireless communications. In March of 1901, J.P. Morgan gives Tesla 150 k that's $4.5 million in today's dollars, for a 51% share of any future patents. Tesla takes the deal and uses the money to build what he called Wardenclyffe Tower, 65 miles from New York City. Tesla had become convinced that he could transmit electricity around the world by using the Earth itself as the conductor. The massive Tesla coil stood 187 feet tall. Everybody gets so worked up about the tower. The secret is the hole, the well beneath the tower. Okay, so under here, is a shaft 120 feet deep, and at the bottom of the shaft were 16 pipes that he basically pushed out underneath the water table, and that was, as Tesla said, was to get a grip on the Earth and shake it. In other words, I'm going to deliver electromagnetic energy into the Earth, and this is how I'm going to send power all over the world. Okay, And, you know, he really assumed that, that if he 
got money from J.P. Morgan. He gave the right sort of newspaper interviews. He built this fabulous laboratory. He lived at the Waldorf Astoria. You know, did everything right that the results were going to follow. One of the things he didn't take into account, as far as Tesla was concerned, an upstart Italian named Guillermo Marconi. Marconi started working on radio in about 1895, and from the get-go, Marconi's insight was, what we're going to do here is we're going to do wireless telegraphy. So in fall 1901, Marconi, and Marconi is always looking over his shoulder, where's Tesla going? Where's Tesla going? And he decides that even though Tesla has already predicted in 1899 that I, Tesla, am going to be the first to send a message across the Atlantic Ocean, Marconi says... (laughs) Let him fart around, pardon me, let him mess around with what he's doing on the North Shore of Long Island. I'm going to get this sucker done. And he succeeds in sending the letter S in Morse code, and they detect it. You took $150,000 from J.P. Morgan. You built this fancy laboratory, you know, and this guy Marconi scoops you. So what do you say to J.P. Morgan? Well, Jamie, Mr. Morgan, I'm really sorry I took the money, and I, I, I won't happen again. It's not Tesla. Tesla basically comes back roaring in January 1902, and he writes Morgan a letter, and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a world telegraphy system. Build a few power plants in major cities like New York, and each one of those is going to collect all sorts of information about stock prices, newspaper stories. The Associated Press is already in existence. Reuters is already basically sending news news stories over the wires, over telegraph wires. We'll do fax messages. We'll do personal messages. We'll do telephone calls. We'll do everything. Okay, And we're going to pump it into the earth. And those stations, as fast as they receive the news, they're going to pour it into the ground, which will spread instantly all over the earth. And so Morgan just sort of says, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not putting any more money into this. And so Tesla's left high and dry after 1903 with no additional money from Morgan. Tesla basically gets himself hoisted on a petard by giving Morgan 51% of the patent rights when he does the original deal. That makes it a mess for getting other, any other investors. Now, before you beat up Tesla too badly about this, Marconi wins the Nobel Prize in 1915 for his work on radio, and he devotes the Nobel Prize speech to basically saying, um, Radio waves, they, they, they go through the atmosphere like this, or maybe they go through the atmosphere like that. He didn't really know, okay? They didn't understand the ionosphere, what we understand today. You have the transmitter. You send up the radio waves to the antenna. The energy radiates off the antenna, goes across space, beep, 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 hits an antenna on the receiver. The receiver detects the signal, and to complete the circuit, both the receiver and the transmitter are grounded. Tesla said, no, 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 no. We're going to do it exactly the opposite way. We're going to pump energy into the ground, oscillating electric currents. They are going to travel through the earth, come to a ground connection at the receiver's end, and then they are going to go back up to the receiver. The energy is going to be used to uh, send messages or run lights or, or motors, and you're going to have some sort of connection in the sky that completes the circuit. So exactly the opposite of what everybody else was doing. So what did Tesla contribute to radio? And yes, the Supreme Court did hand down a decision where they used Tesla patents to basically, in an antitrust case, stick it to RCA. Okay? That doesn't mean that the Supreme Court decided that Tesla invented radio. This is, this is one of these little legal points that's, that's worthy of just mentioning. 
But if you want to talk about who looked at electromagnetic waves, radio waves, and said, there's an opportunity there, Tesla is your guy. Okay? Well ahead of Marconi, he's thinking about what to do. And what he really underlines, which is, I think, an important lesson, is, is how hard it is to disintroduce a disruptive technology. Okay? We sort of, ah, well, the Wright brothers invented the airplane in 1903. <laughs> we're all set. You know, we're gonna, you know, we can have commercial air travel you know, just like that. Okay? There's a long way from the Wright brothers to passenger airlines. The work that engineers and entrepreneurs do to make that happen is real work. Tesla did two big things in his life. He, he contributed two technologies that disrupted the way that people did business, created entirely new industries, changed the way people live their lives every day. The first one was the alternating current motor, which he worked on in, uh, in the 1880s. And then in the 1890s, he worked on the wireless transmission of power. In other words, he was a rival in the first story with Thomas Edison, in the second story with Marconi. Okay. In both cases, you've got this wonderful opportunity in Tesla in that you've got a wonderful success story, and then you have a disruptive technology that didn't turn out so well. The arrow moves from the inside of the inventor out to the marketplace, out to the world. Inventors like Tesla have an idea inside, and they want to order the world out there. It's a subjective process rather than an objective process where you go out and you measure things and you, you, you study the marketplace, you study the phenomenon on the basis of what you see at the benchtop or what you see in your market surveys, you act on that. Tesla is, is, is moving in the opposite direction. We see time and time again that for him to succeed with his major technologies, he's got to tell a good story. He's got to invoke a metaphor. He's got to fire your imagination. Arthur C. Clarke in the 1970s said, any sufficiently advanced technology will always be perceived as magic. Tesla understood that. And above all, Tesla succeeded or failed because when he got or not, didn't get the right kind of partnership. And a partnership between technology, the stuff that Tesla would do, and the entrepreneurs that could help create and advance that technology. Great job as always, Jesse, and special thanks to W. Bernard Carlson and Microsoft Research. And by the way, Carlson's book, Tesla, Inventor of the Electric Age, get it at Amazon.com. And he happens to be a professor of engineering and society at the University of Virginia, where I went to law school. And what an interesting subject. Nikola Tesla's story, here on Our American Story. we continue here with Our American Stories, and we love telling father-son stories here on our show, the good and the bad, by the way. Today we have Reverend Justin McGuire sharing his story, and we love to tell stories from towns all over this country, from affiliates all around the country, and today this one comes from right here in Oxford, Mississippi, and we're about 60 miles dead south of Memphis, and Justin lives here with his wife, Missy, and five kids. Here's his story. I was born in Columbia, South Carolina, 40 years ago now. Um, and my parents divorced when I was 23 months old. So I don't have any childhood memories of my dad at all. Um, from my earliest memories, it was just me and my mom. Dad was never in the picture. 
what I later learned was that my dad had a history of alcohol abuse, uh, substance abuse, that he um, had had affairs, also that he was um, emotionally and verbally and physically abusive as well. As I got a little older, many of those allegations were substantiated by um, other adults in our family, other people who had known him. And again, that was that was just sort of what I was told about him. But again, I had no memory of him whatsoever. I remember once uh, playing at my grandparents' house, and there was a a photo album that I was just flipping through, and there were a lot of you know photos from my childhood, and even of my my mom's childhood, and I have an uncle, her brother, um, you know, their childhood, and things like that. And I came across some pictures of a baby laying on its back, being played with by a man, and I thought that I recognized myself as the baby. Uh, I did not recognize the man, and so I had to ask my grandmother, Grandma, is, is this my dad? And she said, yeah, that's your dad. And so I can't remember specifically how old I was at that point, but certainly in you know single digits, but you know, finally uh, at least there having a, a face to put with my dad was, uh, I wouldn't say helpful, but it, you know, I guess satisfied some small level of curiosity. And I would still sometimes upon, you know, subsequent visits to my grandparents' house, go seek out that photo album specifically just to flip through and kind of look back and see him. So um, my grandparents played a really integral role in my upbringing. My mom's dad, uh, so my my biological grandfather, um, was the father figure in my life growing up. They certainly didn't have, you know, like visitation in, in any legal sense, but it seemed like in some sense they did because I spent so many weekends at their house growing up. So he was the guy with whom, you know, I'd play catch in the backyard and uh, who would do with me all of the things that, you know, a dad would typically have done. But again, growing up, it was just me and my mom. And so things, you know, progressed that way. Um, throughout my childhood, on into college. And then after graduating college and getting married, I learned from my grandmother that, unbeknownst to me, contact had actually been maintained between my dad's sister and, um, and my grandmother. Like, she would check in from time to time, you know, just to kind of see how I was doing, if I was, you know, growing and developing normally and things like that. And that came as a complete shock to me. My, my assumption for my entire life had been that there was there was no contact whatsoever, not necessarily due to any animosity or anything like that, but just because, you know, that was the way that things had gone. And so that was very surprising to learn. Um, what was more surprising was maybe six weeks after learning that, I got a call from my grandmother saying that she had again been in contact with my dad's sister and that my dad had been diagnosed with lung cancer and that he had only been given a few weeks to live and that he had asked to see me. And uh, that was something of a shock. Um, The good news was that uh, I had become a Christian maybe three years prior to that. And so my response to that news at that point as, as a Christian believer was decidedly different than it would have been otherwise. You know, most of my childhood and upbringing, I harbored a great deal of resentment toward my dad and would in probably, you know, 
predictable teenage bravado kind of ways would say things, man, if I ever see him, you know, I'll knock him out. You know, I can't, I just kind of hated him. I, I looked around and I, I saw what most of my friends had and their dads, you know, at a very early age realized that I did not have that and just lamented the loss of that presence in my life. But having come to faith in Christ, um, I was grateful that I was going to have the opportunity, it seemed, to to meet him and interact with him. And so, if memory serves, we got that phone call on a Tuesday. Uh, we made plans to go down the following Sunday. He was in a hospital in Savannah, Georgia. We were living in Columbia, South Carolina at the time, and so Savannah's probably four or five hours south of where we were. Um, we went and purchased a Bible. We had his name inscribed on it. Uh, we gathered some CDs of some sermons that had been kind of meaningful to us uh, in the hopes that, you know, if he was not a believer, that he would read the Bible, maybe listen to some sermons, uh, perhaps come to faith in Jesus, and um, and just prayed a lot uh, from that Tuesday until the Sunday when we departed to go down there. So we drove down there. We got to the hospital. Um, one somewhat disconcerting thing to learn upon our arrival there <laughs> was that he had actually not asked to see me. Um, that was a, a ploy really on his sister's part, very well-meaning on her part. Um, she did not want him to die without having at least seen or met me. And and perhaps I suppose for him to have some kind of closure or some, you know, some way to address, you know, what he had done to me. I, I don't know if she wanted him to, you know, seek forgiveness or, you know, really, what her exact motivation was. But we had driven all that way down there. We were there, and it was kind of, well, we're going to see him anyway. Um, And so I got on the elevator, you know, was went with her, um, got shown to my father's hospital room, and he was uh, laying in his hospital bed and um, met him for the first time in my memory, you know, I had never um, met or heard his voice or interacted with him. There had never been any letters exchanged, no phone calls. There was zero contact uh, over the years. And so um, I was 23. This would have been the summer of 2004. Um, And so, you know, I remember uh, sitting on, uh, he sat up in his bed and was able to sit on the edge of his bed. I remember sitting beside him. We embraced, we hugged, um, wept a lot. Then for sure it's still um, obviously somewhat emotional to think through now, but it was unique to get to hug the man from whom you should have been getting hugs for 23 years. And um, I don't remember a of the details of the conversation. I do remember um, very clearly being able to express to him that I forgave him um, for you know, his absence. Uh, and he asked me if, if I would like to go on a walk with him. He's like, would you like to go on a walk? And I, you know, I didn't even know that that was possible given the machines to which he was attached and everything. Um, I said, well, yeah, absolutely. And even in, even in the moment, it, it somewhat struck me. Uh, how many 
um, what I would have given to have been able to just go on walks with my dad um, growing up. And you've been listening to Reverend Justin McGuire. He lives here in our hometown of Oxford, Mississippi. That's where we broadcast about an hour south of Memphis. And when we come back, we'll continue the story of Justin McGuire, his father's son's story, here on Our American Stories. back with our American stories and we've been listening to Reverend Justin McGuire share his father-son story and by the way send your stories your family stories mother father to ouramericannetwork.org there are some of our best and my goodness we've all got one sometimes a good dad and in this case just a completely absent dad he had never met his dad by the way until one day at the age of 23 got that call that his dad was sick and he went to go see him in the hospital when he got there, Justin's dad asked him to go on a walk with him. Let's get back to the story. They detached him from, you know, his machines. He had to, you know, had to wheel the little IV thing with him uh, outside. But I uh, got on the elevator, went downstairs, went outside. It was this glorious, I mean, it couldn't have been a more picturesque spring day in Savannah, Georgia. Um, you know, the Spanish moss and the trees and azaleas. It was just glorious. And so we went and sat at one of those concrete picnic tables and, you know, engaged um, in some small talk, but given what I knew about his condition and the very limited time uh, that he had, I intentionally directed the conversation toward more, you know, eternal matters. And, you know, I just asked him if he was, if he was certain of where he was going to go, you know, when his life did indeed come to an end. And um, sadly from, from my perspective uh, and from a Christian perspective, he had embraced some beliefs that had been communicated to him very well-meaning but biblically misguided. And so, thankfully, I was able to talk through some of that with him. Um, He asked some questions, and we were able to have a really kind of clarifying uh, conversation about those things at the conclusion of which um, he prayed to receive Christ as his Lord and Savior. And so, <laughs> I mean, as if things couldn't have gotten more surreal, there there was that. And so he gave every indication that he, he understood the gospel, um, that he believed it, and that he believed it for himself. And, um, you know, shortly thereafter, it was clear that he was physically weakening, you know, a little bit. And so we we went back and um, visited for a little while longer. At that point with Missy, she came into the room, and um, his sister, um, my mom, actually came in, which was really interesting as well. You know, uh, They embraced um, neither one of them expressing any you know, ill will toward the other or anything like that, so that was, that was kind of neat to see also. And, uh, and we ended up leaving. We went to lunch with his sister, his 
brother uh, who was married, uh, his sister single, something that I learned that I think explained a good bit to me about why my dad ended up being the way that he was, was that he was the baby of their family. If I remember correctly, I think those were the only three siblings. He had the older brother and sister. He was the baby. When he was two, their dad died. Um, And I can't remember the cause, but obviously unexpected. In their recollection from the get-go, he was uh, the, the black sheep slash the rebel, you know, of the family, um, you know, engaged in all kinds of illicit behavior that they never approved of. And, and so there was this really interesting contrast between the way that he had lived his life and the way that they had lived theirs. Um, and that, upon reflection, helping me just to appreciate even more deeply um, God's grace in my life uh, to keep me from going down similar paths. Um so we wrapped that up. I, I would say we probably spent uh, five or six hours in Savannah. We came back and had uh, planned to go back down the following Sunday for a similar sort of visit. And in the meantime, I had several phone conversations with my dad during the week. He uh, he had begun reading his Bible. He had listened to those sermons. You know, every indication that I got from the conversations that we had was that he was engaged uh, spiritually. Um, and uh, sadly, but in, in God's providence on that Sunday morning as we were still in bed just getting ready to get up and get going for the day, his sister called to tell us that he had passed away during the night. Um, so within a few weeks, they had his his funeral. I got to speak uh, at his graveside uh, very briefly. Um, that's where um, things left off, and it's it's been interesting to continue to reflect on. Um, in the years since then, just the the way that I spent all of my childhood and my early adulthood, you know, not necessarily wondering why I didn't have a dad, but there are, there being no no good reason, you know, for that as far as I was concerned, and everything that that I missed out on um, from a dad's presence in my life, but then to reflect on the the gospel hope that I now have that despite not having him in this life, I'll have an eternity with him. And uh, that's, that's, that's a remarkable and very um, happy thought. So becoming a father has definitely at different points forced reflection on my dad's absence in my life in a number of ways. Um, there, there have been different points in my children's lives when they've reached the age that I was when my dad left. And at those points, I've just been struck with the a sense of incredulity that you could leave at that point. Because while I was still young enough that I had no conscious memory of him, a child at that age is totally engaged. Uh, with his or her dad, um, able to play, able to interact, even to some degree verbally. Um, and and I, it just struck me, how how could you do that? How could you leave uh, at that point? Um, on not countless but numerous occasions, um, the, thought, <laughs> the thought has crossed my mind very consciously. You know, when a kid says, hey, Dad, you know, can you, can you go in the yard and play football with us? 
And it, it's like, of course I can, you know, I, I absolutely I will. Um, e- even within the last week, that's happened on more than one occasion. When again, the thought has just come back, man, what I would not have given or what I would have given uh, just to have a dad to throw a ball with something that simple. Um, and it requires, frankly, so little. Uh, but but the the delight that that brings uh, to kids and, and to, to my kids, um, yeah, it, it's definitely given me motivation. I would say on one hand, but but also just gratitude for the opportunity to be present in their lives. And, and I don't remember who said it or where we heard it, but Missy and I uh, both clearly remember hearing. Um, someone say something along the lines of, you know, kids don't grow up in Christian homes and leave the faith um, because of how, you know, wrongly their parents did things. But the kids who, and and again, I'm not citing statistics or anything like this, but, you know, kids who end up growing up in the church and, and end up leaving the faith are those who had parents who tried to act like they never did anything wrong. You know, it's not that they didn't do things wrong, it's that they did things wrong but refused to ever own it and wouldn't apologize and acknowledge. And so there's this this facade or a veneer of self-righteousness that gets communicated, like I'm getting everything right, and if you would just kind of get on board with my program, then everything would go swimmingly. Um, as opposed to parents who simply in, in acknowledging sin to their kids are just telling their kids what their kids already know. They know you screwed up. They know that you shouldn't have said that. They know that you should not have lost your temper that way. They know that you shouldn't have done whatever it is that you've done. And it actually presents a meaningful and really redemptive opportunity to communicate to your children, listen, um, yes, for this stage of your life, God has put me in your life as, as a guiding authority figure. Uh, but when it comes to our relationship with God, you and I are shoulder to shoulder. You know, we are side by side in that. And mommy and daddy need the gospel and we need God's grace every bit as badly as you do. And so, both when you sin and when we sin, what we want to remind you of is the desperate need that we both have to look to Jesus for grace and for forgiveness. And so a part of that means going to the person against whom you sin and saying, listen, buddy, listen, you know, I'm sorry I said that. I responded way too strongly and daddy was wrong. Um, will you please forgive me? Having not had a father growing up deepened in me a desire for connection to a father and um, knowing the way that the scriptures repeat the nature of his relationship with us as of a father to his children. We long to hear that from our parents. I would even say, you know, having grown up without a father, specifically from a dad, for a dad to say, I love you. And I'm proud of you. And I approve of you. And I'm pleased with you. I feel compelled at every biblically appropriate opportunity um, to remind God's people that that's the way that he views them and that's the way that he loves them. And that the more deeply they believe that, the more equipped and empowered they'll be uh, to live out their callings as his kids in the world. And you've been listening to Reverend Justin McGuire and his father-son story. And again, this comes from our small town. And if you've got a father-son story, a a mother-daughter story, any variation, 
Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. When there's a faith element, as you can tell, we don't leave it out like so many other folks do. And when there isn't, well, we do it anyway. Um, Americans come in every possible variety and form to our airwaves, and we respect it all. And again, Reverend Justin McGuire telling it straight as he knows it about his own father and now his own duties as a father and as a, as a devoted person of God. His story, so many others like it across this great country, here on Our American Stories. American stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. You're some of our favorites. Today we have on Dr. Bill Danko, who has co-authored two books, the first titled The Millionaire Next Door, published in 1996, and the second, Richer Than a Millionaire, published in 2017. In 1973, Dr. Bill Danko was a student under the late Dr. Tom Stanley. He assisted him in the study of the affluent market. During their time together, they collected 20 years of research. And in that research, they interviewed over 100 millionaires to get their stories. In 1996, they published their book, The Millionaire Next Door. Dr. Danko's personal life greatly influenced his work as well. His grandparents were immigrants on both sides, and when they came to America, they couldn't read or write English. Here's Dr. Denko. One of the things that really set me in the direction that I ended up in, uh, my mother said, Bill, stay in school. Well, I, I took her pretty literally, uh, went on, of course, college, graduate school, then became a professor. But when I look at the values that the grandparents and my parents, and the stage that was set, it wasn't about being a victim. It wasn't about saying, oh, woe was me. It was basically, we got to integrate into society. We have to learn English. We have to be contributors. And I think those were the very first lessons that got me started on this uh, adventure that ended up with a couple of books and a career at a university and everything else that goes with these uh, successes. Regarding The Millionaire Next Door, there are basically seven key factors that help people become wealthy. And by far, the number one factor is to live below your means. And by that, I mean we have to play not only offense, but defense. And what this means is, How much you make is really how you play offense. How much you keep is how you play defense. One of the issues is people tend to live beyond their means, unfortunately. And in fact, they go into debt and they cause all sorts of other problems in their life. But one of the things that we have found consistently in our research, that for every wealthy person who can actually afford a luxury item, 
there are probably four to five others in the same neighborhood who are buying the same item because they want to look wealthy. And so you really have this problem. You either want to be wealthy or you want to look wealthy. Well, to look wealthy often means incurring debt. On the other hand, we have these people who have genuine high net worth capabilities, have a very nice bank account, have a lot of satisfaction in their life, doing what they do, but not having to impress anybody. And this is how the book really got its title, The Millionaire Next Door. We find that many individuals live in ordinary houses and you have no idea that they're really quite comfortable, at least from a financial perspective. And so through survey research, we were able to find there's a lot of people who have what we call dull, normal occupations. In fact, in the appendix of uh, The Millionaire Next Door, we have a litany of occupations of people who you say, well, how can they possibly have money? For example, we have trailer park owners who are millionaires. Now, how can a trailer park owner be a millionaire? Well, here's one anecdote that was explained to me. Look, Bill, I have a piece of developed land with utilities on it, and I rent that land to somebody who owns their own house, namely their trailer. And so they pay their rent, I give them the utilities, and here's the key. If they don't pay their rent on time, I have a whole new definition of rolling stock. This is really a genius way of making money. You're giving people a legitimate place to live, and the deal is they pay their rent, and it's easy enough to evict them as opposed to having an apartment, which can be quite complex to evict somebody from. And I'm not advocating evicting anybody, but it certainly is a model that seems so déclassé, so blue-collar to say, oh, a trailer park. Well, the owner of the trailer park can actually make quite a living doing this. I interviewed this individual named Enrique. He's a Mexican immigrant, and he's worth $3 million. And I said, Enrique, you got to tell me your story. What do you do? He goes, well, I never took a marketing course. I don't have a business degree. But what I have is perfect musical pitch. And I'm also a piano tuner. And he says, I am able to get into a client's house and in the privacy of their living room, have a discussion with them about their piano needs. <laughs> and I said, this is interesting. He says, okay, I'm a credible individual, and he is. I'm able to help them buy a $50,000, $100,000 instrument, and I'm taking my stream of commissions, and I buy rental units. And I've created a net worth for my family of over $3 million dollars, by using my God-given talent to help people with their musical issues and secondly, help my family at the same time. And so it really had nothing to do with formal education, but it had everything to do with understanding human behavior. And 
at the end of the interview, Enrique said, you know, Bill, America is the land of opportunity. God bless America. And to that, I told Enrique, amen. You understand, my friend. You're getting this right. And you've been listening to Dr. Bill Danko, and he has made it a lifetime pursuit to figure out why people have money as they get older and accrue wealth and why some don't. Simple stuff, it seems. The author of The Millionaire Next Door and Richer Than a Millionaire, his story, Dr. Bill Danko's story, continues here on Our American Stories. And we return to Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Dr. Danko, co-author of Millionaire Next Door and Richer Than a Millionaire. Dr. Danko and Dr. Stanley had interviewed over 100 millionaires to get their stories for The Millionaire Next Door. We left off hearing some of those stories and how a lot of people they interviewed were millionaires of a type you just wouldn't expect. You know, my travels and giving speeches, I've had the opportunity to interview a number of bovine semen distributors. Now, these distributors are absolutely critical to the propagation of livestock, and it's a very organic job. Here's one of the problems that we have in America. You know, when we take sociology classes, we are told that higher categories of uh, social class say, well, you live in a better neighborhood, you have a formal education, and you have a high income and a nice house. There's a number of criteria that can define social class. And so what we have is this educational system that has said, okay, it is good to strive to the next level. Now, could you imagine this farmer who's very good at what he does in this bovine semen distribution business, sitting his daughter down at the breakfast table and saying, my dear, for your occupation, I want you to follow in my footsteps. And I think he's going to say to her instead, you know, this is a tough job, very organic, very, um, it's hard work, there's no question. I want you to go to a private school and hang out with a lot of rich kids and get some wild spending habits into your system. <laughs> because what I do is just so blue-collar and so difficult, I don't want that for my child. Now, what have we just done here? Somehow, we get this notion that there's something better than what you're doing now. Well, there's nothing wrong with being a bovine semen distributor. There's nothing wrong with being a trailer park owner. There's nothing wrong with being a piano tuner. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's about understanding a niche that you can develop and exploit in a very positive way and create a living for your family, you know, and creating a lifestyle for your family. And so sometimes we get distracted by societal norms of saying, well, somebody's going to look down on you if you do this kind of job uh, the rest of your life. That's, um, that's just a, a crazy 
ill-informed way of looking at how to uh, <laughs> how to live up a, a satisfying life. Don't try to change if you're doing something really well right now. We really have then not just the blue-collar millionaires who live next door. You know, you know certainly there are physicians who have become very, very wealthy. And here's one of the problems, though, that some physicians encounter. They have very high social prestige, lots of good education, they're life-saving individuals. But what happens is, there's a number of them, after going through their undergraduate program, their four years of medical school, their internship, their residency, their specialization, they say, man, I have been <laughs> suffering all these years. I'm going to live it up a little. And some of them tend to live it up a lot. And they get on this economic treadmill where they're just trying to, as long as they're still plying their trade, they are able to maintain their lifestyle. But what happens when they reach the age of 55 or 60 and you're a surgeon and you need some fine motor skills? What happens when you can no longer ply your trade? All of a sudden you take a hit on your retirement because you can't sustain the lifestyle that you've been used to. So, what we have here is really millionaires who understand the prudence of living below their means and having an occupation where they really understand how they fit into society's needs here. When we look at the millionaire next door and people on their quest for wealth, maybe there's an issue here that it's really not about money, but it's about money and happiness, or money and being miserable. And so my colleague, Rich Van Ness, and I, he's a retired professor, we would have these conversations in our uh, socializations and, and, and talking about what kind of legacy do we want to leave our children and our grandchildren. He has a number of grandchildren as well. And we said, you know, let's start making some notes here as to what's, what is it all about. And we agreed, money is good, but money and happiness is better. <laughs> One of the issues we investigated is how much is enough? And in fact, this is highlighted in one of the early chapters of Richer Than a Millionaire. And we asked the question, what is your current net worth? And the follow-up question, how much do you think you need in order to feel wealthy? Now, this is interesting. When we ask you know, hundreds of people this question through our survey research, we're able to get some pretty good data points. And let me give you a couple of examples. If your current net worth, that is your assets minus your liabilities, that's your net worth. If your current net worth is, say, $500,000, what we found is that when people say, well, I need $2.5 million or five times more than that in order to feel wealthy. Hmm. And then we asked, we had a group of people who had the $2.5 million net worth, and they said they needed twice that amount, or $5 million. Now look, here's the reality of the 
120 million households in the United States, the median net worth is just about $100,000. This means half the households have less than $100,000 net worth, and the other half has more, have more than 100000 Well, to go from 100000 to a million, to be a millionaire net worth, that puts you in the top 12% of the distribution. And to be a one percenter, you know, you think you need a, to be a billionaire to be a one percenter, but all you really need is about $11 million net worth that puts you in that, that very rarefied category. And so what we realized through our research is that there are a lot of people who have unrealistic expectations about how much they think they really need. And if we were to compare ourselves on a worldwide basis, uh, most Americans, even below the $100,000 uh, net worth category, are still well off on a worldwide basis, that's for sure. Maybe it's about perception of how you feel about your wealth. We incorporated a measure in our survey, one that was created by a professor, Ed Diener, who spent his career looking at life satisfaction. He put that in the public domain and we used it in our survey to examine, well, all right, you have this money in reality, but are you really happy? This is where we can contrast and compare the happy with the dissatisfied. And what we have found is that there's differences in behavior between the two groups. And part of it is based on some of the writings when we reread Benjamin Franklin's essay from 1758 titled The Way to Wealth. He talks about true prosperity and he says, while it's good to be industrious and prudent and frugal, all these things are good. That's how you build wealth. But for true prosperity, he says, don't forget to be charitable to be truly wealthy. And you've been listening to Dr. Bill Danko. And my goodness, that last part is so true. Uh, to be truly happy means to be generous and to give back. And America is indeed one of the most, if not the most generous nation in the world. Actually, it, it, we are the most generous country in the world by far, by a very high standard. And it's not the rich that give the most as it relates to their actual net wealth. It's actually the middle class and the working class. And even many poor people who step up and give money and time. Generosity is the road to happiness, but boy, it helps to have some money in the bank. And also to just live below your means. Old school wisdom applied to modern life. All tied up in all of our stories because money is such an important part of our lives. More with Dr. Bill Danko here on Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories, and we've been listening to Dr. Danko, co-author of The Millionaire Next Door and Richer Than a Millionaire. We left off talking about his newer book, Richer Than a Millionaire, which is all about wealth and happiness and how happiness is linked to being a giver rather than a taker. Some personal life events sent Dr. Danko down this road. His father, it turns out, died from MS at the age of just 38. His brother developed MS when he was only 23 years old. After his mother had a stroke, Dr. Danko took on the responsibility of his brother's care, which taught him some valuable lessons. He needed everything. Uh, you had to feed him, bathe him, dress him, brush his teeth, floss his teeth, everything that goes with uh, caring for another individual. And it's fortunate we both liked each other, loved each other, I suppose. It's even a better word. Um, and uh, his mind was always pretty sharp, but he had absolutely no physical abilities, uh, couldn't even scratch his nose. Well, when I look at what does it mean to be a giver, what does it mean to be a, ch uh, a charitable person, I mean, we hear the expression, charity begins at home. Well, let's, uh, let's, let's live up to that idea. It's, um, it, it's something that had to be done, and I'm glad I was able to do it. It's, um, it, it made me realize that all these wonderful riches, and indeed, you do need some riches to be able to afford um, certain things that insurance can't pay for or won't pay for, um, and buy him a house so we can keep him out of a nursing home. Um, all these things obviously did require some money, but it also required the will to do it. And I'm convinced it was the upbringing, um, my religious upbringing, I, I'm not going to deny that, as well as the uh, role model my mother uh, gave me about don't be a complainer, don't be a victim, just get the job done, and uh, let's move on. Uh, what a wonderful philosophy, quite frankly. <laughs> and, uh, I, and I certainly hope, well, I know my kids have adopted it. I really do. I, I, I really see how they're raising their kids. Um, and now I hope the grandkids really can see the merit in that. And so along the way, not only, of course, with the millionaire next door, with the good professor Tom Stanley, and then the richer than a millionaire with uh, Rich Van Ness, looking at some of the characters that I've been able to interact with over the years who really reinforce uh, these ideas. I mean, for example, there was one guy, I'll call him Mr. Young, uh, he was an alcoholic, multi-millionaire, very successful in a material sense, very um, well-placed in his profession. But it was through Alcoholics Anonymous where he realized that he was powerless to control these uh, personal aspects of his life. And he told me in an interview that his happiness and self-esteem have nothing to do with his profession and his worldly, worldly success. They're derived from the soul. 
And so when we talked about the fact that he wasn't anxious about the future anymore, and he made God central to his life, he really understood what true riches were all about. He understood the things he could control and he couldn't control. And another example, a physician, I'll call her Dr. Denise, that's her first name, but um, she was a radiologist and a young mom, and she wanted to be a good role model for her son. And what she wanted to do was show how charitable you can be by using your profession for the betterment of poor pregnant women by setting up an ultrasound clinic that was easily accessible to those in need. So when I look at some of these role models of, of people who have you know, a very good niche understanding of their profession, well-educated, but never lose sight of the fact that we really have to be contributors to society. And this idea of charity that resonates with Dr. Denise and it resonates with so many other people who are richer than a millionaire is really something that we ought to uh, pay more attention to. I interviewed a neurosurgeon. His name is Dr. Harry. Uh, that's his first name. And this uh, physician has since become a emergency room neurosurgeon because when he said he was doing elective procedures, he always found himself on the end of lawsuits because nothing ever really turned out the way it ought to turn out in any kind of surgery. But when he sees people who are have a gratitude for being saved because of his life-saving ability in an emergency situation, it gives him this very positive feeling about humanity. And he related this story that once when he was driving through a snowstorm and he had no hotel to go to, but he saw the lights of a hospital in the distance, stopped at the hospital, identified himself as a physician, and they graciously let him stay for a day or two as the storm uh, dissipated. But he told me that he never forgot the generosity the hospital showed him, and he has now mentioned them in his will that they are going to get a charitable contribution because of that act of kindness they have given him. So there are people out there who truly understand the idea of gratitude, not only to receive it, but also to pay it forward, as in Dr. Harry's example. My hope is especially, um, there, there's two different hopes here. The millionaire next door certainly develops the framework of these are the things that you have to do in order to become a wealthy individual. And it can, you know, being industrious and frugal and being a saver and having a diverse uh, portfolio and letting, you know, uh, time work for you in terms of multiplication and understanding that um, buying a depreciated car is probably in your best interest and just some good basic values.
Because what has happened, and, and especially we see this in the United States, and I love this country, make no mistake about it. However, we have become so lopsidedly consumer-oriented where people need the next biggest and best. And people have told me after reading The Millionaire Next Door that it was a, a sobering read because they said, well, so that's how you do it. You don't have to live in the big house and have the new car. Now, Richer Than a Millionaire builds on those same wealth uh, processes of this is how you do it with empirical evidence that we have through survey research and richer than a millionaire we demonstrate that those people who indeed are charitable who give their time and talent to others in need truly are more satisfied people it's my hope that we'll get people oriented towards this idea of being givers instead of takers and realizing what's truly valuable in life. And you've been listening to Dr. Bill Danko, author of The Millionaire Next Door, and also richer than a millionaire. And my goodness, everything he's saying, I'm sure you're nodding at or smiling about, and the degree to which we can do the things he talks about determines a lot of our life's wealth and our happiness. Dr. Danko's story, and so many Americans' stories who live under their means and who were generous. All of those millions of stories in this great country here are now American stories. And we continue with our American stories. And as you know, we tell stories about everything here. But the most important stories we tell are our military stories. And this one is a military family story. And you're going to hear right now from Mike McDaniel, a retired U.S. Navy captain himself. He shares with us a few defining moments of his life from way back when, when he was just a little boy, growing up as the son of a naval aviator deployed in Vietnam. We grew up as a Navy family. We had many gatherings where the families would get together, the wives and the children, so we kind of a community within the aviation squadrons. And I remember one day, I can remember it like it was yesterday, May 19th, it was a beautiful day outside, Friday afternoon, happy-go-lucky third grade kid, walking home from school, couldn't wait to get home, spend the weekend playing with my buddies in the neighborhood. And as I approached the house, I noticed there were about a dozen cars in the driveway and along the street. And again, not atypical for a, for a Navy family because they get together, so I didn't think anything out of it. So I went in the house, and as soon as I walked in the house, uh, Mrs. Miles, who was a wife of another squatter mate of my dad's, uh, came up and she says, you're going to come home with me for the weekend and spend the night and with Gary and Larry, they were her sons that were kind of two of my good friends. Oh, okay, so I didn't really have anything planned, but it sounded okay, so uh, we uh, got in her car, and on the way to her house, we stopped at a High's ice cream store. High's ice cream stores at that time were like candy heaven for a kid. You could get ice cream, multi-flavors, and they had these candy racks, you can remember, they were like, you know, 
They were huge as, as I remember them as a kid. And she said to me, Michael, get whatever you want as much as you want. Red flag, something, something's not right here, but hey, what a great opportunity. So I remember going up to the candy rack and just stuffing my arms and glancing over her every once in a while to see if I kind of was reaching the threshold. And she just was like, you know, go up for it. So literally as much as I could carry, I took up to the counter. So whatever. So we went and we had the, spent the night and we, you know, did what kid, little kids do, you know, during a sleepover. And then the next morning she brought me back. And I remember they used to have these big bubblegum sticks back when we were kids. They were called Big Buddies. And there were these long things of bubblegum. And I remember about five minutes out from the house, I tore that thing open. I stuffed that whole thing in my mouth. And uh, she get, let me out, say goodbye. So I walked in the house and my mom met me at the door. And she said, let's go back to your room. I need to tell you something. So we walked back to my bedroom and she said, let me hold your bubble gum because what I'm gonna tell you is gonna make you cry. And then she said that my dad had been shot down the previous day over Vietnam and was currently in the jungle of North Vietnam and they were gonna hopefully rescue him later that day. And that was the last thing we heard for the next three years. So for those first three years of his six year time away, we didn't know if he was dead or alive. And I remember my dad telling me, and one of the last things he said to me was, take care of the family while I'm gone. So here we were, I was in the third grade. My brother was two years younger and my sister was only four. And uh, at the time the Navy had told my mother for us not to tell anybody that he had been shot down, family or friends. And I was just like, how do you do that? How do you go without a father and do this? I remember wanting to think he was okay, but not wanting to think he was okay if he really wasn't. So that was kind of a balance, tough thing to, to, to think through as a young, young boy. The other day I can tell you everything that happened. It was three years later, and it was the day of the solar eclipse in Virginia Beach. I remember the full solar eclipse of the sun, which is kind of a big deal. The community was really playing it up. And I had a little league um, basketball championship game, and I was a pretty decent basketball player back then and I was spending the night with Petey Bowerman whose dad was our coach. We had the early game, it was like an 8.30 game and it was a championship game. Mrs. Bowerman or one of them came in the room and you know we were just waking up and she says, Michael, your mother's on the phone. I remember these words too, she said, Michael, I have some wonderful news. And up until that point, anytime she had said that, I thought something about dad, something about dad but it would be something like the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend or we're going somewhere. It was like a letdown. And this time I remember vividly thinking the grandparents are coming to town for the weekend. And she says, a list came out today. The North Vietnamese released a list of 14 names of men being held officially as POWs and your dad's names on it. We know he's alive. And it was like the weight of the world came off my shoulders. I went to the basketball game and I normally scored about 10, 12 points. And I think I made a score two. I could really care less what happened with the game. And then the reality set in. Okay, he's alive. Now what? Well, let's get this war over with and let's get him home. So I started watching the news, you know, constantly to try to find out what was happening. That was about the time where they were arguing about whether to sit around a round table or a square table 
to negotiate. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. My dad's being held as a prisoner of war and they're arguing about what size the table's gonna be to talk about. That was a very tumultuous time of the war. And now I understand it better, you know, because I have the history of it, but Ho Chi Minh had died. So a lot, of, a lot of changes were taking place in Vietnam, but the streets were wild with protesters and the, uh, the anti-war movement. And it was just like everything was spinning out of control. And here's your dad languishing in a prison somewhere. Okay, then let me fast forward to when we found he was coming home. The ceasefire had taken place in the Paris peace talks where they were, they were negotiating. And then they announced they were going to release the first wave of POWs that were there the longest. And my dad was going to be part of the second wave of prisoners to come home. Well, the first wave came home and that was such a joyous occasion. I can remember Jeremiah Denton walking off the plane and doing his God bless America. It was just wonderful. And, and you knew my dad was going to be in that next wave of those that were released. And then the, the peace treaty broke down. And so they delayed the release. It was like a bad dream. It's just a horrible feeling. Then they, they finally did have the release date. But something else had happened. Because of the first wave that came out and started getting their debriefings, because they started that right away, they found out about what my dad had gone through in 1969. There was an escape attempt. The Navy psychologists came and sat down with us as children and told us, your dad went through a real rough go. There was some real severe torture. We're not sure what kind of shape he's gonna be in mentally. And that scared me to death as a kid. And I, I guess I appreciate them trying to prepare us, but that's not something you say to a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old and a 10-year-old. I, I remember being horrified by what, what, what now? What else is coming? So they take off from Hanoi and we know he's on his way to the Philippines. And this is before internet, this is before cable television, just network television at the time. The plane was going to land in Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines, like at four in the morning, our time on the East Coast. So my mom comes in to each of our bedrooms while we're asleep before she wakes us up and takes a Polaroid picture of us sleeping before she wakes us up. I think I'm laying there with my dog with my mouth wide open or something. So she wakes us up as we all gather around the television. And my mom, she's on the floor on her knees in front of the television. And you see this plane land, and then it taxis up to the tarmac. And they bring the ladder up, they open the door, and the POWs start coming out one by one. And you see this guy, you could tell he was tall, and he's there, and all you see is from about the chest down, and he's adjusting his belt line. We call it a gig line in the Navy. You can make sure your, your shirt is lined up with your pants, trousers, and your belt buckle. It's just a Navy thing, I didn't you know. And you just knew it was him. And my mom dissolves into tears on the floor. I mean, she's just on the floor, just sobbing. And we're like, Mom, not now. Not now, you gotta watch this. So she never saw it. She saw, had to see it on the reruns the next day. Then he walks down the ladder. There he is, as large as life, your dad getting on free soil. You know, that was so cool. So then let me go back to the, the time where they're supposed to come into Norfolk, Naval Air Station Norfolk. And there were like thousands, probably 10,000 people that had come to the airfield to watch this, watch these men come home. They were gonna fly to Travis Air Force Base, then to Naval Air Station Norfolk, but it got fogged in. And again, it's like, what next? You know, it was like one more thing that was delaying it. So what they did, they ended up flying into Oceana and then driving 
from there to the hospital in Portsmouth where they were going to be. So the crowd never saw all that, but they transferred us to the hospital. This black sedan drives up into the conclave of the hospital. And the door opens, and out pops this guy in this navy khaki, full-dress uniform, who you've been waiting for for seven years, because he was almost towards the end of a year-long deployment. Large as life, looking so sharp, even though he's pretty skinny. But he just rushes to the family, hugs my mom first, then picks up my sister in his arms, and they all kind of gather around, and he says a few words, and it, it was like, yes, we're there, yes. And you're hearing a grown man recalling a really tough time in his life, almost breaking down and crying. And again, that was Mike McDaniel, a retired U.S. Navy captain, and his dad, Captain Eugene Red McDaniel, who flew A-6s in Vietnam, shot down on his 81st combat mission. The son gets the bad news. Three years, third grade, third grade to sixth grade. Is dad dead? Don't know. And then four more years, practically, will dad come home? Don't know. Dad does. What a great story. Mike McDaniel's story, his dad's story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for the podcast.